Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Andy Rowe Show. With the pandemic hopefully coming to an end in the UK, we thought it would be fitting to finish season one with someone that's been at the epicentre of the crisis in the UK. During the height of the coronavirus crisis, palliative care nurse Kelly Critcher volunteered to work on the high dependency unit at one of the worst hit hospitals in one of the worst hit countries in the world. You may find parts of this story distressing as well as uplifting. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, Kelly Critcher, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Before we get into your experience with COVID, because obviously we're going to get into that, mm-hmm. let's talk about you and get some background on you, because you were pretty much genetically wired from your family to get into healthcare, weren't you? <laughs> yes, I was. Um, I didn't accept it, I don't think, for some time. I never thought that that's what I wanted to do. So my mum was a nurse. She was a paediatric nurse, and she trained at Great Ormond Street in London, and then she was, when we were young, she was a, a nurse in a practice surgery, a GP practice surgery. And her mum was a nurse. And even my granddad worked for, did, or did some voluntary work for the Red Cross. What, why nursing? Like what, I, <laughs> I know you've got the family history, but why did you decide yeah. it's the right thing for you? Do you know what? I still have absolutely no idea what made me decide. It wasn't like I was, you know, involved in a a really difficult situation. I was inspired by a a particular nurse. It was literally I was traveling the world and I was in Sydney. I'd had an offer to stay there uh, in a bar as like to get a sponsorship to stay there. And maybe that started me thinking about my career and long term plans, which I think I've always I'd always lived sort of day by day until then. And I just suddenly thought, that's it. That's what I want to do. And it, without any hesitation, I just went and phoned my mom, asked her if she could get some of the paperwork sorted and send it over to me. And that was it. I never looked back. Straight into it. Yeah. After you'd done the study and got in there, mm-hmm. you still must have had some moments where you saw some things and were like, I don't want to do this anymore. This is, I've, done, I've made a bad decision. <laughs> get me back to Sydney. Let me pour some pints. <laughs> I definitely missed Sydney 100%, but do you know what? From the moment I stepped foot on the ward for the first time in my student nurse's uniform, I literally never looked back. I never thought to myself, this is too difficult or I don't like what I'm seeing. It was really tough. Being a student nurse is really hard work. Mm. Um, But I never once thought this is wrong. Do you ever get desensitized to the stuff that you see now? When you first started, obviously blood was like you were okay with blood because yep. you'd seen it. Uh-huh. Phlegm, you weren't. Phlegm, it's still my thing. Really? Yeah, I really struggle. I did a lot of work on respiratory wards, and you have to do a lot of suctioning. So, especially if people have got a tracheostomy, this special tube to help them breathe, you have to put a tube down to get rid of their secretions for yeah. them, and it's pretty gross. And even now, if I have to do that, I will stand by the bedside heaving. Didn't you have to pick maggots out of someone once? Yes. (laughs) 
So sometimes in healthcare, they actually use maggots as like a therapeutic intervention. So they'll use it to clean out a um, infected wound. Really? But they're maggots that have been clinically sterilized and grown in a lab. But this poor old guy, he um, had a horrible cancer of the ear and it was fungating all through out into the, the skin. He'd had it, he was having it like bandages put on it. Flies had got in there and, and laid their eggs because he came, when he came into hospital, there was literally maggots crawling out. And it wasn't like, sorry, it wasn't <laughs> like uh, just like a normal ear because there was, because of the wound, there was so many like crevices and things like that. So I sat there with him washing it and picking them out. Oh, yuck. <laughs> sorry about that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> now you've been in the industry for a long mm. time. You must be desensitized to a lot of that stuff yeah. that would gross normal people out. What, yeah. What's your threshold like now? I don't think I've been grossed out by anything apart, apart from phlegm making me wretch. Nothing really. Well, nothing. We we go on to the um, gastrointestinal ward where there's all sorts of smells and sights. Um, we go on to surgical wards. We see massive wounds. We see big pressure sores. Um, I was... Just down the road from us, some guy came off his bike and had a um, like a compound uh, tib fib fracture, and I was one of the first on scene, and that was like blood and flesh and bone and everything, and it, it doesn't turn me anymore. Talk about a um, blockage in someone's intestines. Yeah, so if you imagine like how long your gut is, your bowel, your intestines. And it's quite soft and squishy and it relies on something called peristalsis. So constantly the muscles squeezing and, and moving food and waste product, products through to come out. And there's many, many things that can cause a blockage. So it's literally like imagine somebody standing on a hose pipe, you, something squashes mm. the, the gut, um, but it can obstruct. And so nothing can get through that obstruction or very, very little. And that causes a backup so the the intestine behind it becomes more and more under pressure and eventually things start traveling back the other way. How far so, back the other way? So all all the way. So it will start off as a very a lot of pain. It's always very, very painful. Um all, all the contents of the bowel will start moving back and they will come back towards the stomach. And then often once they reach the stomach, um they will that like the stomach almost rejects the the contents and people vomit so people will literally vomit their their sort of a liquid feces if you like that's come from the gut wow sorry wow mm. and that's what that's called bowel obstruction a bowel obstruction yeah there's lots of different types but it's basically a bowel obstruction as far as the word palliative goes mm -hmm. Because we're talking, we've talked about that, and that's what you do. You're a palliative nurse. Mm -hmm. Tell us what that means and what that involves um, for those people that don't know. So, palliative care is about caring for people who have some kind of life limiting illness. So, that covers a whole array of things from your sort of cancers that, that people are living with. So usually we'd see people with very advanced or metastatic cancers, which is where the cancers spread to one or more parts of the body. We also look after people who have maybe end-stage heart failure, end-stage kidney disease, people living with a dementia diagnosis, 
any kind of illness that impacts the quality of their life. I think many people think of palliative care and think of dying. Uh, but for me, I think about palliative care should be about living well until you die. Why would you get into that? Like, It's one thing being a nurse and dealing with all the things you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Part of being a nurse is you're nursing people back to health. Yeah. You yeah. can't do that in this uh-huh. position. You can't nurse them back to health and you can't make them better. But you can make a massive difference. And when people are surrounded by um, bad news and negativity and being told about things that can't be done, because that's often what people will hear when mm. they've got some kind of um, life-limiting illness. You know, people will talk about do not resuscitate and we're not going to take you to ITU. You can bring a lot of, but this is what we can do. We can help your um, horrible nausea that you've been feeling for the past three weeks. We can start to get your pain better managed that's been impacting your mobility for for months. So you can make a huge difference to people at a really difficult time. And I Mm. think that's very rewarding. Do you enjoy being with people when they die? Because you are often with them, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, probably less so in the hospital now in the in the job that I do now but uh, we we are there sometimes when they die um through covid we were often there when people died it's quite a strange experience so yeah yeah and you pretty much know when it's going to happen because there's particular changes that take place in the last moments I suppose by moments you're talking last minute minutes yeah what what are those changes so mostly it's changes with the breathing. So you'll know that somebody's been identified as dying. And then there's changes over the, generally over the, the sort of few days leading up to them dying. In the last minutes, breathing changes. So you can see patterns where it becomes more shallow and rapid. And you can see times when it's more labored and there starts to be gaps in the breathing. And that's the biggest indicator. It's almost like you can visualize the lungs emptying of air. You can see how the lung lung capacity that people are using is just getting less and less. So the breaths are becoming more and more shallow. And then when there's gaps in the breathing, you might sit there and think, "Mm, they haven't breathed for a few seconds. And then there might be a sudden breath and they might breathe again for a little while and then there's another gap. And when those gaps become more regular, um, eventually the breathing stops altogether. And how do you deal with that? Yeah, sometimes the only thing that's a bit strange is like talking to that person because often we won't know them very well. So generally if it's in the hospital, if somebody's dying and their family are with them, I'll ask their family, would you like me to stay? Because not everyone wants you to. It's a very private time. But some people are scared, so they do want you to stay. But if they're on their own, what do you say to them? Mm. So I kind of like maybe tell them to, you know, as they're taking their last breaths, that they're going to, you know, that everything's okay and just concentrate on your breathing and um, I'm here with you and it's okay to let go. So just kind of be reassuring. But I like to keep talking to someone because you don't want them to Mm. think that they're on their own. There's always a moment where you can just tell that they've died so that they're not going to take another breath. You, you can just feel it. It's a really strange experience. I bet. Mm. I bet. Oh, my gosh. It's, that's intense. That's the most intense thing you can do in any job, really. 
have you ever been with someone that's sort of close to passing away that's giving you some advice that's really resonated with you? Probably when people really accept and know that they're dying, they become more open. People will say things to you like, just make sure you live your life or look after people that you love. But quite often people will tell you things not to do. So don't get, you know, people say like, don't live your life by money. Like, don't worry about things like that. That's not important. Make sure uh, you look after those that you love. You know, don't stay in a job that you don't like. And it's almost like people think about their regrets Mm. and then they tell you things that, that they don't want you to make the same mistakes as them. Let's talk about COVID now. Yeah. Because uh, you were at Northwick Park Hospital, yeah. which was the most hardest hit hospital in the UK. Yeah. The epicenter of COVID and one of the hardest hit countries in the world. You were right in the mixer. Yeah. Did you know that you were going to be hit that hard? We pretty much knew, yeah. I mean, Northwick, have you ever been to Northwick Park? No, it's in Harrow, isn't it? It's in it? Harrow, right, yeah. Is it, it's next to Harrow on the Hill? Yes, yeah. So, so, so a wealthy area. Yes, well, Harrow on the Hill is very wealthy, but Northwick Park serves the boroughs of Harrow and Brent, and they are very poor boroughs. So very densely populated area, hugely multicultural, high levels of poverty, and at the best of times, Northwick Park is busy it's really Mm. busy there's never an empty bed you know if it's empty it's only because somebody hasn't made their way up from a and e yet or from wherever they're coming to they're going you know there's there's not bed space it's nearly always running at near capacity it's been under resourced as most hospitals have in the nhs for decades and so we knew that with our population we were going to be hit hard what were some of the first things you started to notice in the beginning in the hospital? What, what were some of the things you started to see? Were you like, oh, here, here comes that initial yeah. wave? You know what it was? It was seeing people that weren't our usual hospital clientele, if you like. So they weren't people who looked like sick people. They weren't people that had multiple hospital admissions that year. They weren't people who were quite frail and or you know clearly had multiple things wrong with them these were fit healthy looking people maybe people in their 50s 60s who you could tell before this had been fairly robust and seeing people come in really struggling to breathe that was the biggest thing that I remember how did you start to get ready for that how did you start to get ready knowing through the media that it was sort of starting to happen I was actually working at Ealing that that week that things first really kicked off back in early March. And um, we have this system called EPRO. And when you look on EPRO, you can look at um, the patient list in a ward. So it shows you all the patients on any one ward. When I first started looking at EPRO um, in, you know, the first couple of days, it was like one or two COVID patients on a couple of wards and then every single patient in that base in that ward so maybe like 32 patients all had COVID and then what we saw over that week was that on one day it might be Dryden and Dickens ward were COVID positive wards but by the next day it was Dickens ward, Dryden ward, Darwin ward, Evelyn ward and it just went on like that. And it was literally overnight, 
wards were their own speciality was tipped out we were they we were getting as many patients out who weren't covid as possible even if that meant sometimes putting people at risk because what's the greater risk staying mm. in hospital that's becoming overwhelmed with this covid infection that you know we're all people are dying of or maybe not finishing your course of antibiotics for a chest infection so getting people out and the wards were just becoming covid at that point i think they had a normal number of 18 itu beds and within just a really short space of time they had about 63 bed spaces that were ventilated patients you must have been seeing on the news as well italy being overwhelmed at mm -hmm. the same time and thinking that's coming here yeah absolutely but i think even then there was still a bit of a pause where it was like that can't possibly happen it wasn't until we really started seeing that massive influx and we describe it and it's, it literally was like a tidal wave of covid patients coming in that they really had to get moving and i know there were teams that worked through the clock so 24 hours the chief nurse for example was there until midnight on one of those first nights when they were moving things around and then the next day in again at six in the morning and then it was just a few days after that I think that she got unwell she had covid and then her husband That's the did. other thing though because you you're understaffed yeah. as it is yep and then you guys are all getting covid yeah people just literally just put their heads down and just carried on and that's all they could do we couldn't get nursing staff uh, for love nor money so there's itu nurses that maybe usually look after one patient it's one-to-one -one itu yeah they might be looking after four patients right. four ventilated patients you've got regular ward nurses who you know i think there was one ward where you'd normally have one nurse per bay so like four nurses or five nurses and then your care assistants, and there was two nurses covering the whole ward for a night shift. You think, how the hell did they manage? And, I'd, mm. and I, I don't think a lot of them coped well because it was so exhausting, but they did, they got through because they had to. Nobody wanted to come and work at Northwood Park. They couldn't get agency. What was it like when you had some, you had your first patients getting put on ventilators? Uh -huh. For those people that don't know, actually, because I didn't realise how intrusive going on a ventilator is mm -hmm. can you talk me through the process actually what that involves for someone like what you have to do to someone to get them on a ventilator the physical process is that you have to sedate them so you have to completely paralyze their muscles because what you want to do is take over their work of breathing with the machine so you need a body that's strong going to be strong enough to um, not just go into complete failure when you put those those strong sedative and muscle relaxant drugs into the body so you sedate somebody you open up their airway put big tubes down their throat and then the tubes go into the lungs to do the work of breathing for the body to allow the body a complete rest to try and recover from whatever it is so some people you were having to say even if they had covid and they mm -hmm. looked like they probably gonna more than likely die from it yeah you would have to tell them that a ventilator is not an option yeah because so, that will kill you yeah so what they would what they very quickly did was established a form like a bright orange form which we'd actually been trying to roll out for years before this called a treatment escalation plan so when somebody comes into hospital 
you take a very detailed assessment, you look at their history, you look at their, you know, their current medical conditions, their level of frailty, all of those things, and you document what level of treatment that person would be appropriate for. So that was hugely helpful because somebody might have come in fairly well, but if they've got a treatment escalation plan in place to say mm. this person would likely not survive an ITU admission, if they deteriorate very quickly, which people were doing during their admission, we would know that they weren't going to be ventilated. So many decisions to be made yeah. like straight away. So what was the sort of process of for a patient that, let's say, they come into the hospital, mm. they've got COVID. Yep. What did their day look like? So... People would be very closely monitored. So they'd come in and they'd have what's called a blood gas done where they stick a needle right into the artery in, in your wrist. That blood would show how much oxygen is going around their body. And what we were seeing is that people with severe COVID and then what we call COVID pneumonitis is where the COVID infection really takes a hold of the lungs. And basically the little alveoli in the lungs kind of become filled with infection and often with like a, a, a pus um, and so it stops proper air exchange oxygen exchange and so people had very low oxygen levels in their blood and often people would be still you know needing lots of oxygen but still talking still up and able to to, to stand up and move around but with really low levels of oxygen and you knew, you know, their treatment plan says they would be for ventilation, you'd monitor them. And sometimes with very high levels of oxygen, um, and if people had developed this pneumonitis, they'd be started on antibiotics and various other treatments, sometimes people would get better. So it would be a long process. Mm. But if with the high levels of oxygen, we take the blood again and we can see that their oxygen levels are still dropping despite being on huge amounts of oxygen, they would then be taken to the high dependency unit and started on something called CPAP, which is continuous positive airway pressure. And it's, a again, a very tight-fitting mask, and it forces oxygen down into the lungs. So it kind of helps the work of breathing, really. And that would be the next step. So they would be trialled on CPAP, and hopefully with that slightly more aggressive intervention, we'd see signs of recovery we learned quite quickly about the proning, and we'd already seen that in Italy, which is where people are nursed on their front. Right. That gives the lungs a chance to oxygenate more because of the heart space. So when you're lying on your front, you've got more oxygen space available. So we found out quite quickly that that was helpful. But sometimes, despite that, people were still deteriorating. Hmm. But the, by then, they'd be in a fairly controlled environment, so they'd be having their numbers checked literally every hour. So if that 50-year-old that had come in at 9 o'clock had been really low on oxygen, they hadn't responded to normal oxygen treatment, they'd been started on the CPAP machine, by 5 o'clock that evening, they're still getting worse. By this point, they might be coming, well, they not might be, they will be exhausted. Because in order to try and get as much oxygen as your body needs, when the breathing isn't as good as it should be, your body works 10 times as hard to do that. So... Normal respiratory rate would be about 12 to 14 breaths per minute. Nice, relaxed breathing. People were having like respiratory rate of 40s, 50s because they were working so hard. And the body can only tolerate that for so long before it starts going into complete failure. It's really important 
to involve ITU teams early when you can see that somebody's deteriorating so they can then come and monitor that person. They can also start thinking about, have we got a bed space for this person? You know, it looks like they're going to need ventilation. Where are we going to put them? Mm. And make sure that all that's ready so that when they know they're going to be ventilated, that everything's all set up. And they were having to have conversations with people and from quite early on, I know, you know, straight away they weren't doing it because straight away we didn't know that a lot of people were going to die with this. We'd mm. hope that you get ventilated in order to get better and wake up again, which is what happens, you know, what people are expecting if they go to ITU. But quickly we realized that even with ITU support, lots of people were still dying. Mm. So then the ITU doctors that came around to assess the patients were having really bloody hard conversations with these patients about how it's about 50 percent chance that you'll survive these people were sick with covid they don't feel like they're going to die i mean they feel awful but you wouldn't necessarily be thinking like okay. i feel so awful i'm gonna die right so and we're about to sedate you and put you on yes. a ventilator yes you might not wake up 50 percent chance yes oh my gosh but if we don't ventilate you you will die and people were terrified, as you can imagine, of going to ITU. People didn't want to be ventilated because they knew that so many people were dying. And yet the alternative was couldn't accept that either. So then they were giving people the opportunity before they sedated them to have a, a FaceTime call or a phone call if they could talk, because often with all the mask and everything they couldn't, with their loved ones to say things they wanted to say before they get ventilated in case they don't wake up. This was happening obviously during the peak, but also it was, it was happening around March as well, wasn't mm -hmm. it? So how did you feel when this was happening in your hospital and then you'd go out and you'd see people socialising and carrying on like nothing's, nothing's happening? Um, it's hard because you want to just like shout to people, like just go home and, you know, listen to what you're being told. But mm. at the same time... We're that kind of society, aren't we? We, you know, we do what we want most of the time. And so, although I was desperately wanted people to take it really seriously, they couldn't see what we were seeing. Even when you see stuff, I think we see so many videos now and we're, we see so much on telly. Even now, lots of people don't realize how bad things were mm. and how bad things could be again if we ever go back mm. because they don't directly see it and I think we're that kind of society that if we don't directly see things that's not happening if it hasn't happened to me it hasn't happened mm. and so people were just carrying on and and I get it and a lot of people you know a lot of people have businesses and go to places of work that they 100% rely on you know yeah and if they don't have that then but even like mid-March I think you talk about in your book there were lots of people dying i mean but it was like 200 nationally or something like yeah. that um and then there were still people coming out and saying is lockdown necessary yes that must have just yeah i mean how did you feel when that happened yeah and i, I did i felt really frustrated really frustrated and it's almost like you know we did have talks in the office like it's almost like you could label people that were like that and say well if you need a ventilator you're not having one <laughs> of course you wouldn't ever do that but it was like you wanted to say that because it was so un 
unknown in terms of how we were ever going to get through this but what we did know was the extent of it how quickly it was spreading and how people were dying mm. from it and how sort of people that didn't necessarily have any un significant underlying health conditions were dying from it so it's kind of hard to understand how people were still so blase yeah if they came in and they had covid and they were put in the covid ward would they see people in the ward around them with covid dying uh-huh yeah with the same symptoms yeah so it's really difficult so what what they kind of wanted to do fairly early on was create wards or bays within wards where they could group together people that were dying so then other people didn't necessarily see that but it just wasn't possible for many reasons it, you know the logistics of it and so many people were dying and also sometimes people deteriorated very quickly and this was especially people that had the decision had been made that they wouldn't be for the high dependency unit with the CPAP and they wouldn't be for ventilation mm. so their maximum treatment is the oxygen the high flow oxygen and if they start to deteriorate on the high flow oxygen they might die within hours and so you haven't got time to think about moving them from this bay to that bay and moving that person from that bay, you know, you haven't got time. So, yeah, you're right. People were watching or hearing, not necessarily watching, somebody in the bed next to them dying, knowing what was happening because you might have done a FaceTime call with the family or something like that and thinking, I've got the same thing as them. You know, that doesn't normally happen. People do die in hospital and somebody might die in a bed with other people in the bay because sometimes that's unavoidable. But it's very unlikely that they're going to have the same condition as the other four or five people in the bay. So that's kind of like, I get it, they're dying, you know, maybe they're old or maybe they've got a horrible disease and that's really sad, but it's not related to me. Mm. But then all of a sudden people are seeing someone die with exactly thing. the same thing. Okay. March 20. Mm -hmm. Northwick Park declares a critical incident. The, um, the main thing was that they got to the point where I think it was like every 24 hours, something like eight new patients needed a ventilator. So they got to the point where if there had been more patients needing ventilators, they wouldn't have had space for them. And so they declared a critical incident. Other people came forward and said, we've got this many beds, we've got this many beds, we can take these patients, we can take those patients. And local hospitals really stepped up and helped take off the pressure. So we would, we would then transfer people out. You had to empty the hospitals for COVID, right? Yeah. So many people must have died because of they were, they weren't getting treated for what they would usually get treated for. Yeah. Did that happen as much as what I just kind of verbalized? Yeah, I mean, I guess you can never put numbers on it. I don't know whether there was any sort of measuring of of, of those patients, but you're totally right. We had there was a massive effort right at the beginning to to get people out of hospital, and we were hugely involved with that because helping with getting people out of hospital who have multiple things wrong with them is what we do mm. a lot. So our skills were, were quite valuable. But what we found was that we would get people coming in that were really unwell. Like, for example, there was a, there was a guy that came in who'd had a heart attack at home like five days before, but he didn't want to come into hospital because he was so terrified of COVID. But by the time he came into hospital, 
he had further damage to his heart because of the lack of blood supply for those five days. So he was then left with basically a heart failure diagnosis on top of his heart attack, further life-changing diagnosis because he'd delayed coming in. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. What do you say to people that still say that COVID is just a flu? Oh, my goodness. Oh, I don't understand how after everything people can still say that. And for some people, the symptoms are similar to flu. But this is way more than mm. flu. Oh, mm. my goodness. And then there's the anti-vaxxers. Yeah, the anti-vaxxers. How do you feel about those? Oh, um, do you know what? In about October time, this is like a complete admission here. I had a bit of a wobble where I think I'd had a bit of like post-traumatic stress I was really like on a down and there was talk of like the second wave and that really scared me because of everything that we'd been through and I was like it's not going to happen we're not seeing it it's not in Mm. the hospital you know the numbers are down guys like you know and they started talk about vaccinating everyone and it was like really you know is that and actually, actually I was part of the vaccine trial the Oxford vaccine trial But anyway, I had this real wobble and I thought, no, you know, the government are making too much out of this. And then in like November, when the numbers started again, and by December, it was all like, this is actually going to happen. We're going to have a big second wave and we're going to have to go through all this again. I was like, I was so wrong. And I put my hands up to the friends who I'd had conversations with and I said I was completely wrong I think I was in denial Mm. I really didn't want it to happen and I I feel like you're justified a little bit and being in denial about it just from what you guys went through being on the front line yeah oh my gosh but now the anti-vaxxers I think just why like they might find out in the future that it didn't work or whatever but at the moment scientifically and every other way it's the only thing that we know that that is probably going to help. And if it only helps by protecting the most vulnerable people from getting such a severe infection, they also think now that it helps to prevent transmission. Um, So stop it spreading so rapidly and helps to prevent all these mutations. Mm. Then it must be, it must be a good thing. Going back to the, the process that you've got um, for a patient and the levels and Mm. what, what they can and can't, what treatment they can and can't get to. When you told families that this is the level we would go to, yeah. or did, did the families ever 
because sometimes you would have to say they're not going to go on a ventilator. Yeah. Did the families ever accuse you of maybe giving up on them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there were um, families that were desperate and they were just almost like begging the the doctors to change their decision and to to rethink and yeah people find it really really tough Mm. Uh, and that was that was really hard people come to the hospital yeah people would come to the hospital there was absolutely no visiting but and now we have like security people on the doors but back then we didn't have anyone on the doors so there was no really restricting people in and out how far did the people get so they would get to like right outside the ward and some families would almost set up camp and you can get security now and again to come and remove people. But sometimes they would do it just to be as close as they possibly could. So they respect the fact that they're not allowed in the ward to see somebody. But especially when people were dying, sometimes people would want to be there just so that they could be as close as they could. Was there a time like during the peak where, or or during 2020 where you personally just maybe just felt overwhelmed and broke yes um that you know the crisis hit northwick park early and then when things started to sort of tail off a bit and it wasn't such a big panic and things felt more settled and normal patients were coming back in and the covid wards were slowly becoming non-covid wards i think that's when the adrenaline sort of ran out and what I'd expected was I was kind of looking forward to that time I was like right I can't wait now for things just to get back to normal but it was almost like things started to get back to normal and I really struggled and I couldn't understand why and I went home one evening and I was just really restless like I was really tired so I, I like went home lay on my bed and slept for about half an hour but when I woke up, I was really restless. Like I was really agitated. I couldn't settle. I didn't know what was wrong. And I said to Mark, I just need to get out of the house. Just get me out. And um, we drove just around the corner and we went for a little walk and found this bench and sat on it. And I don't think he knew what, understood what was going on. He thought I was going to break up with him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we, um, he started talking and I just started crying. And I... D- I'm one of those people, like, I'll cry at films and stuff, but I don't really cry in life, you know? Mm. And I really cried. And once I started, I couldn't stop. And he said it was it was quite strange for him to see me like that and just put his arm around me. And I just literally just cried and cried. So when families couldn't mm. see their relatives because of COVID, obviously, mm. and they couldn't come in and see them and the, the, the patients were dying... How did you get around that? What were some of the things that you did to almost mitigate that issue? Yeah, so quite quickly, uh, we were given iPads for each ward. So if you knew that a patient was really unwell and they were likely to die, you could um, do a FaceTime call with their family. Um, So, you know, we we might... um, You'd have to have that conversation first with the family to say we're really worried about them or or before they're going to go to ITU or something. And then you'd set a time and they would phone and then you'd get them on FaceTime. And then you'd sit there with the person. And often, you know, the, it might be that by this point they're less responsive, they're exhausted, they're mm. not really very responsive. But it gives the family a chance to say things that they want to say. 
that they would normally be sitting there by the bedside saying. So that was really, really important. But if, if you know, the iPad wasn't there or there was lots of problems with them at the start, we would just use our phones normally. You know, that's you don't normally do that. We'd be very careful about giving your number out. But you know what? What can you do in that situation? You you did that on one specific you got a specific example of that in your book yeah I know this lovely sweet lady her husband was dying she couldn't come in she was in her 80s and he was dying he was unresponsive but my um, one of my colleague consultants came and asked if she could borrow my phone because she didn't have um, FaceTime so she did and took it in and this lady was just saying to her husband you know um, how much she loved him and that you know he's going to be okay and just just close his eyes and go to sleep and it was really lovely it was so moving the next day was a Saturday I think I was on on a day off and my um my FaceTime went (laughs) and it was that lady and I was like oh god what do I do so I didn't answer and I just sent her a message saying why didn't you answer it you think she was ringing out to see I thought that she thought that maybe I was in at work so right. she, I thought that she was ringing to FaceTime her husband again to see maybe oh, he hadn't see. died overnight. I don't know. He was expected to. And he had actually died, I found out, afterwards that night. But I didn't know at that point. And I'm sitting in the garden thinking, well, what do I do? Anyway, I sent her a message saying, oh, I'm really sorry, but you just phoned me, FaceTime me. Did you want the ward to call you? She's like, text back oh no I'm so sorry I thought I was facetiming my granddaughter <laughs> clearly oh, somebody please. who's completely uh not au fait with technology um but yeah she wrote a really nice message back. what was the message she just said like she was so so grateful to be given the opportunity um she said like god bless you and everyone god bless you and your family for everything you're doing it was really sweet the whole country kind of felt like that towards you guys and the NHS yeah what was that like? First of all, tell me about Easter. Oh, People... Easter. So lovely. It's like everywhere you look, there was Easter eggs. Do you know what? The the local community of Northwick Park were fantastic. We just had things all around us, whether that was food parcels, fresh food coming in every day. But at Easter, there was just so many lovely Easter eggs and so so much kindness. It was just overwhelming. Must have been strange, like before COVID, all the NHS bashing. Yes. And suddenly you guys are heroes. Yes. <laughs> what was that like for you? Oh, it was so bizarre. You must have been aware of it. You guys must have yeah. been going, these guys were bashing us. Now we're, now we're, now we're the heroes. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was kind of like a two two part thing, I guess. It was, it was just so overwhelming. It was lovely and it was great that people were really appreciating what was going on but actually there is a problem in the NHS you know what the care is not as good as it should be and myself and my colleagues have daily battles to try and get that good care back and it's because everyone is so overwhelmed all of the time that the basic things slip away Mm. things like making sure patients have had their teeth cleaned and the hair brushed and those kind of things that we'd see as basic just aren't there as much as they should be. And so, yes, we were hugely grateful. For me, I was clapping for all the staff that were putting their own lives at risk to help other people. I was clapping for, like, 
the supermarket staff that were getting abuse and still going into work every day and putting their lives at risk. People that were staying at home, because let's face it, after lockdown, generally people were quite good. Like, And that was a lot for, for many people. Um, so clapping for the NHS was lovely and it was hugely appreciated. Um, but it, it meant many things to me. How did you feel when you heard the clap? You have to take in some of that responsibility for yeah. that clapping for you. Just, just overwhelmingly proud. I've always felt proud to be a nurse, but I never felt prouder. And yeah. you should. Your book, A Matter of Life and Death, it's out now. It's an amazing perspective on COVID and end-of-life care yeah. that I think, I think everyone needs to read and understand. I mean, if I can read it and understand it, then anyone listening to this <laughs> can do the same thing because it's not a topic that I would usually touch or get close to. And, um, but it, it's a book that I think, yeah, you, you just you, you nailed it. Thank you. Thanks again for listening this season and we're currently in the process of putting together season two and already have some epic guests lined up. But if there's someone you'd like me to interview or something you'd like me to cover, just get in touch with me with your suggestions on social media. I'd love to hear from you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.